if we want to live the decades that we plan to hold our Bitcoin, then you need to be healthy to do that. There's such a severe dichotomy in America where you have some of the most obese people in the world. And then on the other end, you have people like us who take our health and you know, taking care of our body very seriously. Hopefully over time, you know, more people shift to uh, our side and, and our lifestyle. All the factors that have led to the price going up 160% this year, none of that has really changed. All of that's still in place. So all the crypto and fraud has been wiped out of the market. The supply that's being held by hodlers is continuing to hit all time highs. Until we start to see the hodl waves roll over, I don't think there's any reason to believe that price would have any major corrections. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we got Mitch on the line. Mitch, how's it going, man? Good to have you. Thank you, Tristan. It's, uh, it's a great day. I'm excited to talk Bitcoin, fitness, health, whatever we get into. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. It seems like this trend of, I don't know if it's just analysts or what, just Bitcoiners who are kind of, yeah, taking um, uh, a very holistic view of this lifestyle and i love it because that's what i do um and i think it's kind of my mission as well to get more more bitcoiners into health and more health focused people into bitcoin so i was saying you know kind of on twitter uh, earlier and i've talked to joe consortia i was like you guys kind of like exemplify that tremendously and it's, it's a lot of fun yeah i appreciate that i i think there's certainly room for cross-pollination because if we want to live the decades that we plan to hold our Bitcoin, then you need to be healthy to do that. And just everybody in general, uh, I noticed there's such a severe like dichotomy in America where you have some of the most obese people in the world. And then on the other end, you have people like us who take our health and you know, take care of our body very seriously. So hopefully over time, you know, more people shift to uh, our side and, and our lifestyle. But I'm excited to dive into it. Is that something you've been into like your whole life, like playing sports um, or yeah. this just kind of evolved or is it relatively new? Because the way I see it is, you know, once you look through the world as a, at this decentralized lens and you realize, you know, the fiat money breaks everything, including the healthcare system, including the food system and all that, um, it kind of reinforces, yeah, that, that sovereign uh, motivation to want to take back control of your health. But for me, it was also something as someone who played sports um, and was very active their whole life, it was kind of just, you know, second, um, second nature for me. Yeah, same. I played sports growing up uh, ever since I could walk. I was playing sports. I wrestled and did cross country in high school. But I will say, like, exercise has always been a part of my life, but my diet was crap for the longest time. And it wasn't until I got into Bitcoin and I really started going down these rabbit holes of food and how you know, they sort of paid off all these studies to get us these cheap processed foods and make it look like it's healthy, right? And then I found the, uh, the carnivore guy, Dr. Paul Saladino. So following his instructions, uh, as, as far as diet goes, has really been life-changing for me. It's One, it's made my gym gains explode. And two, it's actually like, done wonders for my skin. I used to have a 
ton of eczema and like I'm all, I was always getting like inflammation, rashes and everything, but going to a mostly carnivore diet has been game changing. And part, part of that, I have to thank Bitcoin, right? Because I didn't realize just how corrupt the money is and then how that corrupts every other aspect of society. Yeah, it's really insane how um, you realize just how pervasive the the fiat monetary system is in terms of ruining every aspect of our lives. And yeah, I talked to Jimmy Song last week, actually, and he writes about that pretty brilliantly, I think, in his new book. And it is true, like literally fiat ruins everything. And um, it's sad because now we almost have to be like part time nutritionist, part time, you know, investors, part-time, whatever actual job you have, you, you really just have to take on many hats, but it's way better to do that than outsource it to the centralized, you know, people that we're supposed to um, tell us what's good for us and what to do, especially when it comes to our health and our finances. And, and to me, those are the two biggest things, right? Like you don't have your health and you don't have any money, like you're not going to go very far or for very long in life. Unfortunately, you do need money. And that's why we have Bitcoin. But you also need your health, too, because if you have all this money, but you don't have your health. You know, there's no point of having money either. So to me, yeah, that's kind of what I've been um, harping on for a few years now. And I think it's uh, it's encouraging to see all this momentum. And I'm uh, excited to push the Bitcoiners even further down the health rabbit holes. Right. And I'd say both of those things, health and money, um, it really boils down to personal responsibility because nobody can exercise for you. Nobody can eat right for you. Nobody's going to give you a bunch of money. And even if you're lucky enough and let's say you win a Mr. Beast prize or something, you still have to be personally responsible to maintain wealth. That's a task in and of itself. You see plenty of people, they get an inheritance and they squander the wealth. So there's nobody else you can rely upon to, to get wealthy, stay wealthy, and to have physical health. It's all on your own shoulders. Yeah. I mean, that's the foundational like virtue of decentralization, I think, is, is personal sovereignty or sorry, personal responsibility, like individual sovereignty, low time preference, proof of work, right? Like all those things, you know, it's your body, it's your life. Like no one's coming to yeah, do push ups for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. No one's coming. No one even knows like your own body better than yourself as well. And, and that's why even in the health space, you do have to be careful because it's like, who are you taking health advice from? Are they your age? Are they in shape? Like, do they live where you live? Do the same background? Like, it's all very contextual. So, um, right. yeah, it's uh, it's it's fun, man. It's just like if you think about it as well. And and what I'm working on is kind of trying to use Bitcoin as well to help um, improve the research side of things. Is you know, in ten, fifteen years, and maybe even a couple of generations, you know, the health of society is getting so bad. Like, I actually think we already have this fertility crisis, but I think. And then people are purposefully uh, not reproducing. Like the ones who are actually going to have families going to be healthy enough to reproduce in like the next generation or two is going to be folks like us. So it's kind of this natural self-balancing mechanism. Yeah. That's uh, funny to think about. 100%. And if we theoretically, you know, we could change the world in a generation, right? If Bitcoiners and people with our mindset are having all the children, but what that boils down to I think is homeschooling. We have to instill these values into our children. If we're unable to, to homeschool either for financial reasons or we just elect to send them to public school, then it doesn't matter how many babies we have, uh, they're going to get raised by the state and they probably won't see the world in the same lens as us. So if Bitcoin just can have a bunch of babies and raise them ourselves, then we should be able to turn the ship around. 
Yeah, hundred percent. How is like the community where you live or in your area? Obviously, you know, we're both pretty young and it's something that I still find uh, kind of like a hurdle for, for people our age, just living life through this lens. Um, a lot of the Bitcoiners, a lot of even in the health space, uh, people that I'm connected with a lot are, I mean, some of them online are, are our age, but it's definitely a struggle. And I think just tying that in, because you're mentioning homeschooling, is, is that's really, I think, a community problem to solve as well. So if you have a bunch of like-minded individuals in your area, that becomes like a pretty easy problem to solve. Yeah. I, so I live in the South. I live in North Carolina. And there's certainly pockets. Uh, I've lived in basically every different part of the state. And everywhere I go, I meet people that they homeschool and they do basically group homeschooling as well. So the other nice. homeschool kids, they'll meet together you know, two or three times a week just to sort of ease that burden because it really does take a village. When I think back to my own childhood, yeah, my parents had a huge part in raising me, of course. But there were also other influential people in the community that helped mold me into the man I am today. And I think that's really the way. But in general, though, most people still, they send their kids to the state. Like homeschooling is very, uh, and I wasn't even homeschooled myself, but it's still sort of a niche um, way to raise your children. And most people view it as like, oh, you're going to raise like really antisocial dorks that you know can't communicate <laughs> with society. And there's some kids like that that are homeschooled, unfortunately. But realistically, everybody, everybody I've met, they always talk about, oh, there's so many things wrong with society. So it's like, why would you want to raise a child that fits in with that, right? You, you don't want someone that fits in with the world. You want to raise someone that, that stands out. And, you know, I can't wait. To, I don't have children yet, but one day I'm looking forward to it. And I'm certainly going to homeschool them. And I'm trying to build community here, too. So I've started a, well, I didn't start it, but. I helped start this Bitcoin meetup in my town. Right now, it's like not even 10 people, but you know, we've got a long-term vision. We want to, to build roots here. Everybody's trying to make, you know, they say Austin's the Bitcoin Citadel or Nashville or El Salvador or wherever. I want to make right here in North Carolina the Bitcoin capital of the world. And I don't ever plan on necessarily leaving unless things got really bad for some reason, but I don't anticipate that happening. I, I see a lot in the Bitcoin community, you know, when times get tough, if you know there's higher taxes in your your state or whatever, everybody's first instinct is to leave, and I kind of understand that. But I think there's something to be said for digging Soft. your roots in the mud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stay where you're at and and change the world around you. And if it gets to the point where it's you know unfixable, maybe like like California, then you can go to somewhere else. Oh, I totally agree, man. I mean, first off, that's yeah, it's pretty much exactly my frame of mind as well. Um, building community. Uh, I run the Wyoming Bitcoin meetups, which is even more challenging because uh, everybody lives about three hours away from each other right. and, you know, three, four people in each town. But, you know, it's it's great to have a community. And yeah, I totally agree. I think we need to be building as many citadels or communities of, of Bitcoin um, maximalists and just, uh, you know, sovereign individuals, because although it is a sovereign individual, you know, that's that's a personal journey. It's personal responsibility. But if you have the community around to support you, you know, the the amount that you can accomplish, the momentum we have is is far greater. So it's important, I think, to distinct there the individual uh, virtues, but then also the collective greater force that pr comes with the community. So, yeah. And then also as well, I think American Hoddle said this on maybe a podcast is like he's tired of everyone thinking we need to jump ship, uh, especially in the U.S. And in the health space, oh my God, it's even worse. Like literally, I think every health influencer is like 
you know, you need to move to the beach. You need to be, you know, in El Salvador, Costa Rica or some tropical place. First off, it's just unrealistic for a lot of people to just pack up and move. Second, I think it's somewhat soft in the regard that it's like, yeah, you're just jumping ship. You know, we do have a great country that was founded on great virtues, but they just strayed away from that. And uh, it's really something that you can be a part of, you know, providing the solution or or the momentum to fix these issues. So I'm, I'm totally on board there. Um, and that's why I love Wyoming. And again, yeah, Wyoming, North Carolina, Texas, uh, Tennessee, the is vastly different from living in New York City or San Francisco. It's it's a completely different scenario. And if it does get really bad, it's going to get, well, you could debate how bad it is there right now, but it's going to get even worse there before, you know, it's going to get really bad where we are. So it's, uh, yeah, it's something to say about kind of the, the character and the pride you have. But I'm curious just to wind it back as well. You know, how did you personally get into Bitcoin? What was like the inflection point? Um, was there any, you know, moments along that journey where you made mistakes and learned, you know, going from shitcoinery to Bitcoins uh, or Bitcoin only, everything. Let's hear it. Right. So I was very much a normie. Uh, I'm only 23 now. I got into Bitcoin at the end of 2020, going into 2021. And there were a few different touch points that, that really allowed the orange pill to click in my mind. The first was I spent over COVID I got sent home from school, and so I had a bunch of free time. I was binging a lot of Thomas Sowell. So he's this African-American economist, and I would basically watch his videos, like everything he's ever put out. And that really, he did, he's not a Bitcoiner, and he's not an Austrian economist, but he's huge on free markets. And so I was very much beginning to understand how important it is that government stays out of markets. And then second was I saw the M2 chart. I saw what they did in March 2020. and Knowing that that's just massive government interference, I knew that we had to get inflation. Like this is not, this is not going to not result in inflation. And so that happened. And then third was the election. Uh, I thought it was very fraudulent, the 2020 presidential election. So my distrust for systems was at an all-time high. And those three ingredients was kind of the perfect cocktail. And then all of that culminated in the start of the Bitcoin bull market. So I, I finally noticed it. I was like, oh, what is this? thing it's going up you know from 10,000 to 20,000 just a few months hey friend thanks for listening if you really enjoy this podcast it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on spotify apple or subscribe to our content on youtube this helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education and all i did was i go went on youtube and i searched how does bitcoin work in the first video I watched, I saw it has a limited supply of 21 million. I'm like, all right, this is exactly what I need to defend against inflation. And as a bonus, it's completely separate from the existing system. So the government can't manipulate this. They can't stop it. They can't shut it down. And that was, that was when it clicked. And I only shitcoined for a little while. Like I just genuinely didn't understand. I think there's a lot of people like that because the, the altcoin casinos put out really good marketing. They're, they're like, oh, you know, this... Sure, Bitcoin's a store of value, but you also need Web3, blah, 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 whatever, which you don't really need all that stuff. We need to fix the money side point. But I only altcoined for a few months, and then I very quickly figured out Bitcoin's the only legitimate thing in crypto. And I got really lucky because I figured that out at the very peak altcoin top in the spring of 2021. So everything I had purchased was up in Bitcoin terms when I sold it. So I got really lucky, and I didn't experience any of the... I major downfalls of BlockFi, FTX, or none of that. So 
I've been in Bitcoin, I guess, going on three years now, and it's been awesome. My life has changed significantly for the better. I, I didn't even save money beforehand, right? I was a broke college student just working like part-time minimum wage. I didn't have that much capital put into it. But once I realized if I save Bitcoin now, it's going to be worth much more in the future. My mindset totally shifted. I used to just spend every penny I made. I didn't care. I didn't had no long-term financial plan. Wasn't even a thought in my mind that that's something I should prepare for. I was like, oh, I'm only 20 years old. I got plenty of time to figure that out. But just seeing the opportunity cost of Bitcoin, like any dollar I spend now on something else, that could be Bitcoin, which could be worth 10, 20, 100x more in the future in purchasing power terms. That really shifted me from being a massive consumer, high time preference to a saver, a producer with a low time preference. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, props to you on that journey as well. It sounds like good timing. Uh, we yeah. all, yeah, I, I definitely learned the hard way with some shit cornery in uh, 2018, 2019. But, you know, all roads lead to Bitcoin if you have that open mind and those values, you just click in your head. And, you know, it was the same for me as well. Kind of 2020 was when um, I totally separated it from the pack. And it was like, wow, this distrust of everything from the government side of things. Um, is uh, at an all-time high. So it's it's just so foundational and, and really is such a good way to talk about it. It's just savings, right? Like we can't save in dollars anymore. This isn't a, a thing that actually works because of inflation and the you know, absurd uh, destruction of purchasing power over the past decades and acceleration of that in the past few years. So it is the easiest way to think about it. It's like, this is just long-term savings, right? And it will appreciate over time. And if people think about it like that, it's, uh, I think it's a lot easier to convince them to, to come on board. But you then, I mean, now you're, you're an analyst. So is this something like in college, were you a finance major and this totally shifted your, your paradigm? Or, or how did you make that transition? Because you post a lot of great content on kind of the, the macro world and um, Bitcoin, of course. So how did that come to fruition? Did you just like get so orange pilled? You're like, this is what I want to do with my life. Yeah, that was 100%. I had no direction. So I was a junior in college when I figured out Bitcoin. I was like studying business and economics, Keynesian bullcrap. But <laughs> I, I had no idea. I just like basically picked a major out of the hat. I was like, all right, I'm here at university. I'm not going to study gender theory, so I'm bullcrap. Like, let's just let's do business because I want to make money one day. And how do you make money? Well, with businesses, I had no no idea what I wanted to do. I thought maybe the banking route, I didn't know much about it. I was like, oh, bankers make a lot of money. And maybe that'll like subconsciously, I was trying to position myself close to the money printer is what I realized in hindsight, because the thought that I had was like, all right, if I work in banking, I can make connections to maybe get a loan to start my own business one day. Not even realize like, I'm just trying to position myself to the mon monetary spigot because loans are just money printing effectively because there's no reserves in the bank. But as soon as I figured out Bitcoin, all right, this is what I want to do for my career. Absolutely. This is where the innovation's happening. This is something I'm actually passionate about. I didn't want a boring nine to five job that I didn't care about for some company making a product that is not really valuable in my opinion. So I basically spent my entire last year of college trying to put together like a proof of work portfolio just to show that, hey, I'm someone worth hiring. I work hard. I'm young. I'm willing to learn. And Blockware took me under their wing uh, during my second semester of college. I started out just doing social media posts, but slowly over time, I've been able to take on more responsibility. And really, Twitter is how I got hired, just putting out regular takes on Bitcoin. I used to have a podcast 
way back in the day that was really crappy, low quality. I had no idea what I was talking about, but just the fact that I was creating content and discussing my ideas going on Twitter spaces, a lot of that um, really started to pay dividends after, after a few months and going through like some of the on-chain data. That's I, so I had the pleasure to work with Will Clemente. Uh, he was at Blockware the same time I was for a little while. So I was able to learn straight from him, like on how a lot of the on-chain data stuff works and really start to develop as an analyst. And I've been able to work with so, so many great people at my company. And the, another great thing about Twitter is that all the best minds are like putting their content out there frequently for free, right? So if you want to learn about anything, you know, just follow the, the experts and eventually you'll be able to pick it up and, and start doing your own analysis. Yeah, well, that's proof of work 101 right there is kind of like, hey, you know, I got this blank slate but I know what I want to do. I'm just going to put in the work until someone notices and eventually someone will. And that's what's brilliant about this is like you can just, you know, decide your own fate if you're willing to just put in some work. So that, that's incredible. Yeah. So I guess what are you doing on a daily basis as an analyst? This is something, you know, I'm, I'm curious about and, and how is Blockware, you know, what's the goal of Blockware at a company level and how is that different from maybe other firms, other companies in the space as well? Right. So. My day-to-day does consist of looking at, you know, Bitcoin stuff, um, on-chain data, looking at what's going on in the mining market specifically. So we, our main source of revenue is selling Bitcoin mining rigs, ASICs. And I put together a lot of insights specifically that we can give to our sales team to help sell rigs to clients, right? We want to, we want to provide all our clients with the most insights, right? Because Bitcoin mining is... It's within Bitcoin, of course, it's related, but it takes it another step further. There's a lot of intricacies to it that I didn't even understand until I started working for Blockware. So putting together content that allows our clients to really understand what's going on in the mining industry, you know, what are ASIC prices doing? What's hash price doing? What are transaction fees doing? Where do we see things going? You know, looking at some of the public miners, what are they doing? How, do, how have miners historically positioned themselves to succeed during bull markets? That's but I spend a lot of my time focused on, and then I lead all of our content efforts. So I'm constantly putting out tweets, LinkedIn posts, crafting emails for clients, putting together charts. Uh, I do podcasts for Blockware. I help write the weekly newsletter, and we also do you know sort of longer form reports that we release about once a quarter. So there's literally an infinite number of things I can work on because there's no limit to the amount of content I can produce. So I would say a lot of my job though boils down to learning. Just taking in information, digesting it, and then putting it back out into the world in a palatable format. How do you balance that creation of content versus the learning aspect of it? Because this is something I do as well around, you know, health information is, you know, I put a lot of content out there, but also learning a lot. And sometimes it could be a challenge. I definitely enjoy the learning um, part of it the most, I would say. But Sometimes when I'm forced to create a piece of content is when I actually do learn. So I'm curious your take on that and kind of like a slightly different space. Right. I would say that's exactly how it is. Learning and content creation for me go hand in hand. So for example, the other week uh, when Oceans, the mining pool was announced, I was trying to really understand what's this all about. So for that week's newsletter, I broke it down and that forced me to learn about it because I think that's what I love about writing. So like we can get on here and I can talk and I can probably, you know, spout bullshit about whatever, like talking doesn't really take much effort, but to really write something down, you have to know, like you can't just spew nonsense when you're writing. It forces you to learn it. 
And then I do love talking though as well. If, if there's four aspects to learning, I would say there's reading, there's listening slash watching, but then there's writing and talking. And I think those last two really bring things together, right? So when you write it down, you're forced to really flesh out the ideas. And then talking is like the last step. Do I understand this well enough to explain it to a five-year-old? And yeah, so content creation and learning go hand in hand. If you ever want to learn something, simply take notes. If you think back to if you, whenever you were in school and you actually wanted to learn the material, you took notes. Maybe even if it was a class you didn't care about, right? In order to get ready for the test, you took notes. So why would you not take notes on content you're actually interested in? This may sound dorky, but when I'm listening to podcasts, I carry a little notebook, like fits them the size of my hand. I always carry a pen with me. Whenever I hear something that makes sense, I just write it down because something mentally, it just clicks on my brain if I write it down. If I don't write something down, I don't remember it. Oh, 100%. I mean, just you're just building those like neuronal connections in your mind. You have to, because if you just listen to something, you're going to forget it like in 10 minutes, typically, unless it's something you've heard 40 times now or 30 times. Like it, it takes more to where if you write it down right after you hear it, then you're just building those connections like right away. I, it's something I, I've been wanting to do. I do it occasionally like in my phone notes, but you're absolutely right. And yeah, it's kind of that balance of when you do write something. And that's why I think people online should definitely have an appreciation, but also understand that, yeah, this is kind of like the process of how it goes. Like when you put out a piece of written content, you know, you become like knowledgeable and maybe somewhat of an expert on it. Like in that moment that you're actually creating the piece and then that's like the beauty of it as well but if you don't um you know really reaffirm it um via writing or via actually talking about it like in person or, or online like we are now then it's probably not going to resonate as strongly in your mind you might forget that information a lot sooner as opposed to if you had done those things so it's 100%. really fun it's hard to balance sometimes as well um but you know i think writing I, i'm just a way bigger fan of writing and that's why i love twitter because you know instagram and all, like creating a video uh as much as i love visual content and like i do aesthetically appeasing appeasing things like outdoors i just would rather write because it just flows better for me and then i find that i just learn more when i do that yeah i don't even have instagram i used to have it back, <laughs> you know a few years ago but I only have Twitter and it's for that exact reason. I love to write and I love to share my thoughts. And I honestly surprised if you that asked me three years ago, are right, you going to start publishing, you know, 20 tweets a day? Do you think you're going to get like a bunch of hate comments out of thought? Yeah, surely like people on the internet are mean and nasty, whatever. And maybe I'll say something stupid. People will reply, oh, you're just an idiot. You're wrong, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> an overwhelming amount of the replies and that I get at least, are positive, right? People are like, oh, this is insightful. Like, thank you for sharing. Even I used to be like, I guess I don't say want to say self-conscious, but what is it? It's imposter syndrome. Right? I used to have imposter yep. syndrome. Like, I'm gonna put stuff out there. Nobody cares what I think. Like, what do I have to say that's valuable? But even if no one reads it, it's still valuable for me to to put something out and really flesh out an idea. And then yeah, every now and then, you know, I'll say something that's probably wrong and people will correct me in the replies. And that's valuable for me, right? I would have kept having the wrong understanding of whatever that concept was had I not, you know, had the courage to to put my ideas out there. So learning in, in public, I think is incredibly valuable. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel the same exact way. Uh, I think I still have imposter syndrome, but I actually think it's a good thing the way I use it. It just makes me, it forces me to really want to know a topic before I, I start talking about it. Um, I'll write some stuff, but they, again, if I'm going to talk about it like in, on a podcast or something, I, I definitely, I'm not going to talk about things that I'm kind of like 50% of the way there. I, I really want to make sure I know it. Um, but speaking of that, like, the response how has the response to what you're putting out there changed in the past let's say 12 months right like we kind of crawled our way out of this bear market a little bit and you know things are looking good how have you noticed um that changing in terms of your interactions with your content you're putting out there the biggest change is that there actually is interaction so (laughs) my account has actually grown to quite a decent amount this year in the end of 2022 going into 2023 i don't remember exactly how many followers i had on twitter but i think it was less than 2000 and i'm approaching 10,000 now so i want to say that it's because i started putting out more insights but i have to be honest and i would say it's a lot of it has to do with the bitcoin bull market i think that pumps up like any bitcoin content just hits the algorithm more but i also think i've learned a lot over the last year and i've also studied the twitter algorithm a little bit to try to you know figure out how to better promote my content as well as to provide just higher quality content in general. I really started getting into to the on-chain data stuff this year. And that's been uh the reception to that's been very positive. You know, people are like, oh, thank you for sharing this. Like even just something simple as like a chart of exchange balances, right? Just like updating the market. Like, hey, you know, hundred thousand Bitcoin have left exchanges over the last six months. Like this is this is important stuff to know, right? I think on-chain data kind of gets slack because people during the bull market were trying to use it to make short-term price predictions, which is bogus. But I think it's better when you look at it from a long-term view, right? For example, the HODL waves that show you how much yeah. Bitcoin has moved over the last, you know, however many months or years. If you were, if we didn't have that and you hear Bitcoin are saying, oh, I HODL, you would have no way of knowing if they were actually like pulling your leg or not, right? But you can look on chain and see that Bitcoiners don't just say they hodl. They actually do hodl through these bear markets, which considering this past bear market was my first, like that gave me a lot more conviction to know, hey, I'm not the only crazy person just riding this thing all the way down. I'm going to ride it to zero because everybody else is trying to get out. It's like, no, you look on chain and see, you know, 70% of the coins still haven't moved. Like we're all here. We're all willing to go down with the ship. And that fact is why the ship would never actually go down. This podcast is brought to you by our lead sponsor, EMR Tech. EMR Tech manufactures high quality, high powered red light therapy devices. In my opinion, red and infrared light are two of the biggest nutrient deficiencies in our modern society due to our indoor lifestyles. Red light therapy devices like the ones from EMR Tech can help combat that by providing high powered red light while being indoors. I personally use mine every morning and every evening. Red and near-infrared light is extremely beneficial for energy production in our body because it boosts mitochondrial function and penetrates deep into the cell. It is also extremely beneficial for skin health, eye health, as well as our circadian rhythms. And this is actually pretty much why I bought everyone in my family an EMR Tech red light therapy device for Christmas. EMR Tech panels are low flicker, low EMF, and use targeted wavelengths such as 830 and 630 nanometers, amongst others, to get extremely effective results. For more information, go to emrtech.com and use our code DRADIO10 for 10% off your order. That's emrtek.com with our code DRADIO, D-R-A-D-I-O, 10 to save at checkout. 
Yeah, I mean, totally. I, I mean, I think, yeah, you, you post great content, so I wouldn't say it's just because of the, the Bitcoin <laughs> bull market, which is it technically a bull market yet? I don't know what the deciding moment of time is. I guess you don't really know until uh, you're looking a year uh, backwards. Right. I mean, we're up 160% yeah, on the year, yeah. so I wouldn't call it the bull market, but it is bullish. Yeah, totally. Well, well given in that, yeah, how, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on what's going on right now? Because we've had this tremendous appreciation in price. We have pretty much all this momentum at our back in terms of BlackRock, in terms of the halving, just adoption across the board. There's nothing really pulling Bitcoin down. Um, in terms of, you know, like the FTXs of the world, the three RS capital. Um, the only thing I see that's pulling Bitcoin down is, you know, sound monetary policy from the United States Federal Reserve. Uh, and then also just macro um, movements, right? Which to me, the latter is something that actually could have a real impact, perhaps the next three to six months, but long term probably won't matter, right? So where do you stand right now? Because I've, uh, as someone who's seen this kind of pl play out, like we never just go straight from like the bottom to the top of the bull. Like th this stuff always has pullbacks, always has corrections. So I, I think personally, when people start calling for a hundred K, I'm like, okay, guys, like, yeah, eventually for sure. But I don't, I really don't think it's going to happen in the next three months. Like I highly doubt that's going to happen. So um, right. I'm also really wanting to have cheaper sats to stack. <laughs> so I'm happy to see it go back down. Yeah, I would say the same, but I mine. So I actually am able yeah. to stack more sats when the price goes up because I have to sell fewer to cover the operating expense. There but all the factors that have led to the price going up 160% this year, none of that has really changed. All of that's still in place. So all the crypto and fraud has been wiped out of the market. The, the supply that's being held by hodlers is continuing to hit all-time highs. Until we start to see the hodl waves roll over, I don't think there's any reason to believe that price would have any major corrections. Of course, you know we'll get 5%, 6%, even 10% drawdowns here or there. But for example, the, the recent drop, drop, it was a dip for ants from 44 to what, 41. If you look at historical price pullbacks, it's doesn't even like make the radar. It's nothing. Bitcoin's just volatile in the short term. We know this. And then I think the macro tailwinds are about to whip up significantly. I'm I'm not super versed on macro, not like a, a joke and sortie, but I I'm very much prescribed to the debt spiral thesis. I see no play for the U.S. government to to pay off their debt other than by issuing more debt, which is effectively printing money, increasing the supply of dollars circulating in the system, the amount of spending that is mandatory, Social Security, Medicare, military spending that they're not going to cut, and then the interest payments on the debt, that's the vast, vast majority of the budget. It's far more than what the U.S. brings in through tax revenue. And even if they were to, to Jerome Powell saying hire for longer, he did hire, but it doesn't seem like he's going to be able to do longer because yesterday he already foreshadowed, hey, we're going to be starting to cut rates in 2024. So let's say even he, if he did do higher for longer and the economy crashed, well, then tax receipts are going to crash, right? So then that deficit problem just gets worse. So the only way is to just continuously issue more debt forever and ever at lower interest rates that are beneath inflation so they can actually serve it in, in nominal terms. So long term, the supply of dollars has to increase forever and there's only 21 million Bitcoin. Now, could the U.S. government 
pump the brakes on everything, hike brakes to the moon and, you know, do QT and default on the debt from a hard, like a hard default, not just a soft default. Sure. But they're not going to, and you're not going to see them cut spending because no politician's going to run on the platform of rug pulling the boomers on social security. They would not get elected and that would just not roll over well. So the only logical play, the only really possible play at that is to print money forever. Yeah, I mean, talking long term, there's really like only one outcome and it's like, yeah, you just want to accumulate as much Bitcoin as you possibly can. I think even 12 months out, um, there's pretty much to me like no no other outcome. And if you go even for the further you go, obviously, the the more that percentage increases. So close to near a guarantee. Right. And uh, the way I think about it is, yeah, we might maybe we do have like the short term drawdown, like the interest rates really start to, you know, have an impact um, just in general. But whenever that drawdown happens, yeah, we know they're already going to lower rates. Um, If it happens, especially like if it gets ugly, they're probably just going to turn on the money printer sooner rather than later. That's what they've always done. That's every time there's a recession, people I hear they say, oh, well, Bitcoin's never been through a recession. So how do we know how it would perform? <laughs> we know how it'll perform because the playbook is for a recession is always print money and print money in larger quantities than the previous recession. If you just look at 2020, what was it? <laughs> a third of all dollars were created in 2020. Now imagine if we get a recession in 2024, it'll probably be half of all the dollars yep. will be created uh, in that year. So number go up forever. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of- yeah. It's it's like the recess, like Bitcoin was built for recessions. Like that's like the whole point is right. to have these massive injections into the the money supply. That's like all right, um, yeah, literally put everything you have into Bitcoin because there's only one way it's going. And if you view it through the opposite lens too, let's say they really let the money supply contract, they let people start paying off their debts, they kept rates high. Well, we saw what that did to the banking system, the immense oh, stress yeah. that put on onto it, and. We know what that would do to risk assets. I mean, the stock market would tank, real estate would tank, but Bitcoin, maybe it's USD price would tank, but it's still separate from that system. It still exists entirely apart from that. So it protects you both against extreme monetary expansion, but also extreme monetary contraction and you know the end of debt cycles, uh, as Ray Dalio puts it. That's a good point, too. I think maybe one that's under discussed is, yeah, because if the banks collapse, which, you know, that could very much happen in that sort of scenario, or at least consolidate even further, as we kind of saw earlier this year, a little bit with Silicon Valley. um, Yeah, that's just going to make Bitcoin more attractive. So the way I see all these scenarios is that no matter what happens, if Bitcoin does like draw down a tremendous amount in price, it's probably only going to be for the short term. And this is be like, you know, a lifetime buying opportunity. So, yeah, for me, it's like I think there is a chance that that could happen the next three to five months for sure, but it's not going to last for long. And the timing of the market is pretty much impossible. So the always the recommendation would be to just, yeah, just buy Bitcoin every week, every day, and especially the next six months. I think uh, you won't be sorry that you did. Right. I second that entirely because if you're sitting around on a bunch of cash, hoping for one of these massive drawdowns like a March 2020, you may get left in the dust, right? Because seriously, anybody who who would have sold Bitcoin has already sold. I, I don't know that you'll see one of these events where people are forced to sell. Right now, the only sellers that exist in the market are the Bitcoin miners. And what do you know, the amount of Bitcoin they'll have available on a recurring basis to sell is going to get cut in half in about four or five months. And 
maybe this is like maybe I'm too optimistic, but I think Bitcoin could really become the flight to safety that we know it is, right? We fundamentally understand that Bitcoin is not a risk asset. It's a risk off asset. There's no counterparty risk. It's got an absolutely limited supply. And we've basically seen Wall Street start to recognize that fact. Larry Fink called it a flight to quality. They've given it the thumbs up. I think we could see, you know, in some sort of credit scenario, there be a rush to Bitcoin. We, we kind of saw it in March of this year. In immediate, there was like a short-term price correction, but within like three weeks of the banking crisis, Bitcoin yeah, was up yeah. 50%. There was a massive flock to it. I, I could see the same thing happening because Bitcoin's basically proven that it's not going anywhere. You can have all these Ponzi's built on top of it, like FTX. That's not going to kill it. You can have China ban mining. That's not going to kill it. Nothing can kill it. And I think the broader market has finally come to grips with that fact. Yeah, so something I want to get into is 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 the mining kind of dynamic of it, and then maybe BlackRock after that, um, because to me these are kind of the very two important pieces to the puzzle right now. So we have the having happening, whatever you want to call it, coming up. Are you in the camp that you know the reason why the price has gone up post having all the time is because of the having or because of the coincidental monetary injections at the same time? I'm curious there, and I'm just curious in general on the mining situation right now because it seems like everyone's in a, like a pretty good spot you know hash rate has it's gone through the roof and yeah we we haven't even you know got to the having yet and it seems like pretty bullish uh, whereas you know definitely of course back at like 16k it was it's very nerve-wracking for for a lot of mining companies so yeah i'm curious yeah. your thoughts this episode is brought to you by wyoming based my new apparel company that is focused on providing high quality natural fiber based products using 100% US supply chains. Our first two products, the 100% wool everyday beanie and 100% wool rib sweater are proudly made right here in Wyoming using local wool. The wool is low itch, high quality and durable, naturally antimicrobial and way better for your health and the health of the planet. If you want to support a local U.S. brand and are tired of supporting woke outdoors companies that shill plastics, check us out at wyomingbase.com and pre-order your sweater and beanie today. So I would actually say the biggest reason for the cycles has been the hodler behavior. So if you look at the hodl waves, mm. the supply is most illiquid uh, during the bottom of the bear market effectively. And that has coincided with halvings, which has also coincided with monetary liquidity. And I think the monetary liquidity and halvings both play a role, but I do think it's the, the hodled supply that is the biggest there. But in terms of the mining landscape right now, there's been a huge relief this year, obviously, right? You know, at the end of last year, it was very difficult for miners. A lot of them were mining at just that break even or just under, but they've got a lot, a lot of room to breathe here. And one of the, I call it the dark horse for mining profitability going through the next epoch is transaction fees. I'm not a fan of ordinals. I don't think you should be selling, uh, you know, buying one sat for 10 Bitcoin. I think that's just stupid. People could do what they want. But what we've seen is just a small marginal increase in demand for on-chain settlement, what that can do to transaction fees. Because for most of the bear market fees were under 10 sats per V-byte. And now they're consistently over 100 sats per V-byte. Even, you know, they dip down to just like 50 or 60. 
and then gone right back up. And now imagine what's going to happen when financial institutions are actually trying to use Bitcoin for means of settlement, right? And layer twos like Lightning aren't in the position to adequately service the demand that's going to come. So it's going to be on chain is the dominant method of sending Bitcoin. And there's only so much space within each block. So that's going to have a huge boost to minor revenue. And I don't think it's unreasonable that during the next cycle, we consistently see transaction fees make up a bigger percent of minor revenue than the block subsidy, because that already happened uh, for brief stints, like uh, for a few blocks during uh, May of this past year. We saw a few where it was more than the 6.25, but since the block subsidy is going down to basically 3.1, I think we'll definitely see blocks with more than three, three Bitcoin worth of fees. So minor like mining i'm just as bullish on it as i've ever been and especially if we do get this massive bear market or bull market that a lot of people are expecting where the diminishing returns kind of breaks right it doesn't take much capital from the institutions from blackrock to really move the needle so if bitcoin goes to you know multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars bitcoin miners are still just paying an electricity bill to produce bitcoin so you're going to see hash price just rip you're going to see a public mining stocks rip. You're going to see ASIC prices go to the moon. In 2021, S19J Pros were selling for over $10,000. And right now they're at, at like $2,000. So you could see that, that same sort of appreciation on the ASICs as well. Yeah, I think that all makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, what, is, what was the percentage or like the max percentage that you're saying you've got over 50% during the ordinal hype? And then what, what is it now compared to like the block, uh, block rewards? Yeah, so I think the 30-day moving average last I checked was about 15% of minor revenue was coming from the transaction fees. So that's about one and a half Bitcoin per block. It's still a decent chunk. Like that's pretty good. Yeah, 100%. So. Is that, but isn't that going to be like a problem? Not a problem, but going forward, like obviously for, for smaller transactions, you know, that's why we have the Lightning Network. But I, I guess what you're saying is with the institutions, especially they're moving around a lot of money, they're going to be forced to use on chain. But eventually that probably would be resolved. And then long term, you'd really only use on chain for larger sums of Bitcoin, um, which I guess right. would be, again, the kind of like institutional. Um, way to go. The way, I mean, the way I think about it is we know fees will be high because that's the design. That's the way the mining yeah. economics and incentives are going to work. And Bitcoin provides a service, peer-to-peer global transaction settlement with no third party. Like that's a valuable service and people are willing to pay for that. And fees are going to be high. It's the cost of doing business. And I think that's why UTXO management is so, so important. I, I put out a video a couple of weeks ago explaining exactly how utxos work and and why you know properly managing them could save you a fortune in fees because if you're sending a transaction and it has one input your block your transaction is going to take up less space in the block so you have to pay fewer in fees but if your transaction has multiple inputs it's going to be a bigger size in terms of data you're gonna have to pay more so definitely consolidating utxos is the number one thing you could do especially if you've been dollar cost averaging and withdrawing from the exchange frequently which is good practice but that means you're gonna have a lot of UTXOs. If your entire stash is comprised of, you know, hundred thousand sat UTXOs, you're gonna be in for a nasty shock when fees are, you know, a thousand sats per V byte. Yeah. So maybe if you have some uh, Bitcoin that you want to move, do it now before uh, yeah. BlackRock comes in. Um, in general, like, what are your thoughts on on mining um, from like 
the individual level to like the small miners that are out there to, you know, the big boys like Riot, Marathon, because the way I see it is it kind of has become something that's really only been profitable for a decent sized player at this point. But that all changes when the price hits, you know, 50K, 75K, 100K. And then also from a non-KYC perspective, it's of course very important. So how do you look at it? Because you said you do do some self-mining at home. No, not self-mining. I, I mine okay. with Blockware. So that the reason the hosted mining industry is even a thing is because mining is so competitive. It's a race towards the lowest energy price, finding the most remote sources of energy that are stranded that nobody else is paying for. And because I think the days of home mining in, end up being profitable are likely behind us. That doesn't mean you can't home mine for other reasons, right? Let's say you have heating. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, heating, or maybe you have solar panels and you produce excess power and you want to use Bitcoin miners to consume that. Or if you just simply want to support the network and run a miner at a loss to get no KYC sats, like these are all perfectly valid reasons to home mine. But another thing, I don't think the sort of institutionalization of mining is any concern for Bitcoin security because, for one, any there's plenty of stranded energy sources throughout the world. I've seen videos of people in a Guatemalan prison using like oil to mine Bitcoin. Then you could go to these middle, the middle of nowhere in Alaska and, and do flared gas mining. You could go to a river in upstate New York and mine Bitcoin. Like there's so many different ways to decentralize mining. It's not a concern. And even then the opportunity costs for someone, if they were able to get 51% of the hash power, they could just mine 51% of blocks, honestly, and get all that Bitcoin. It doesn't make any sense to attack the network, destroy the value of your rigs, et cetera, et cetera. So as far as inst- like security, I don't, I don't see that being a problem. But in terms of you know, mining as a business, right, you want to allocate the, the cheapest source of power. And I think mining is kind of a foreshadow of what the world will look like under a Bitcoin standard. And I'll explain why. So during, for one, it's got these massive cycles, right? Bitcoin every four years has these bull markets and then these massive bear markets. I think that's indicative of the short-term debt cycle, which under the fiat system, cheap debt allows you to, um, allows unprofitable businesses to survive those drawdowns when they otherwise wouldn't, when they're not allocating capital properly. But you don't see this in the mining industry because it's so nascent and, and new during these massive bear markets, there's not a lot of access to funding. Nobody wants to buy the stock. Nobody wants to loan money to these companies. So the ones that over leveraged during the bull market, they you know, borrowed against their machines. They borrowed against their Bitcoin. They didn't properly manage their balance sheet. They didn't secure the cheapest power because they just wanted to get online ASAP. You see them get wiped out during the bear markets. And then the ones that are allocating capital most efficiently, they've got the best machines. They've got the cheapest power. They've got a strong balance sheet. They survive the bear markets and thrive during the next bull market. And they're all operating on a Bitcoin standard too, right? Because they, they have Bitcoin denominated treasuries. Their cash flows uh, are derived from Bitcoin. Their entire balance sheet is composed of basically Bitcoin related assets. So I think that's indicative of what the world will look like under a Bitcoin standard. There's not going to be an abundance of debt to borrow and finance inefficient businesses. And only those who are allocating capital efficiently will survive. So that's sort of how I view the mining industry, really, especially going, coming up to the halving, you want to have the cheapest power, you want to have the, the most efficient machines, but you also want to buy rigs at the most opportune time, right? 
ASIC prices are still relatively low and you're going to have a harder time making a, a 100% ROI on your investment if you buy rigs at the top versus if you buy them during the bear market. Yeah, I think that all makes total sense and it kind of shows how the dynamics will change from a fiat world to a Bitcoin standard world. So with that, do you think like the cycles are kind of tapered down? A lot of people are, are predicting this. I think so as well, just because of the you know, the amount of Bitcoin that's in circulation versus, you know, getting added to is, you know, we're almost at 20 million at this point. So I'm curious your take there. Yeah, I actually, I think the cycles will die down, but for a different reason. So mm-hmm. to address the, the having and this issuance change, when you look at it in Bitcoin terms, yeah, the, the change in issuance is a smaller percentage of the total Bitcoin supply. But when you look at it in dollarized terms, it's grown every cycle uh, because yeah. the Bitcoin, Bitcoin market cap grows. So and price is moved on the margin, right? It doesn't necessarily matter what the last 1 million Bitcoin transactions were. If there's no more asks at 40K and the next ask is at 50K, all it takes is one transaction for the price to move. So because it's set at the margin, I don't think the change in issuance, you know, being smaller as a percentage basis necessarily means uh, we're going to have less cycles. But I do think the cycles will will probably end at some point I'm optimistic that it's going to be this cycle because of the type of money that's going to come in through the ETF. It's pension funds and insurance companies. It's really large asset managers that they're not the retail speculator traders that we saw in 2021 that got wiped out as soon as the price went down. These are institutions that they just buy assets and they hold them for decades. And if they're just holding Bitcoin in the ETF and they're not selling, then I don't think you'll see, you know, 50 plus percent drawdowns anymore. I think the massive bear markets are are behind us. That may sound like hopium, but I also, I haven't really heard anybody else really agree with that point. So I think it's kind of a contrarian view, which makes me think it's more likely because, you know, the, the market tends to not do what everybody thinks it will do. And I think anybody who's, you know, trying to, quote unquote, sell the top in this coming cycle so they can buy more Bitcoin at the bottom. I think it's a terrible idea and I think it's incredibly risky. Yeah, I I've actually feel like I have heard people say this, but maybe not for that exact reason. But I definitely feel like a lot of people are on the train that at least the cycles have become less and less uh, volatile, like the drawdowns would be for sure less um, extreme. And uh, it makes sense to me as well, based on what you said. And just it's a lot of confounding factors. But for sure, when the institutions come that they're not, they're just going to kind of prevent that from happening to some degree. But I have seen, you know, folks like, like Larry Leopard say, yeah, we could come back down to like 80, 90 K, but you know, they're just throwing numbers out there. I feel like, cause uh, that's what they enjoy doing to some degree. And we really don't know. So yes, yeah, selling your Bitcoin at the top of this would, would probably be, you know, pretty risky. And, um, the next, you know, that it's a great transition as well, because the, the BlackRock, the ETF is this huge milestone has been talked about for years and years in the Bitcoin space. And when it seems like we're, we're finally going to get it, um, maybe sometime early next year, we know what it's going to do to Bitcoin, but I'm curious, you know, how exactly does this play out? Like has BlackRock bought any Bitcoin? Have any of these guys bought a bunch of Bitcoin or do they need that approval to really go all in? And then, you know, there's just a long gap period, like uh, one or two months before it it starts trading, I believe. So what is basically the whole process of the approval of the ETF 
the acquisition of Bitcoin um, and kind of how that all works. Yeah, I'm not super in the weeds on the technical aspect of it. I assume once once it's approved and they start getting people trading their ticker, then they'll go and buy Bitcoin to back it with. But they could be buying it now to back it with. Uh, as far as BlackRock specifically, they own a bunch of mining stocks. They own MicroStrategy. So they already have Bitcoin exposure in that regard. But I think the the thing about the ETF that I don't hear discussed enough is there's going to be game theory and competition between the various ETFs. You're going to see some of them, maybe it's the ARK ETF, maybe it's the Vanguard, maybe it's the Fidelity. They're going to publish the addresses on chain that they just have that transparency, right? And I think that's going to force other ETFs because they're going to be a competition for each other, right? How can I, if I'm Vanguard, get people to buy my Bitcoin ETF instead of the BlackRock? Well, I can make it more transparent. I can offer redemption so you could take self-custody of the Bitcoin if you have the ETF or vice versa. Let's say for some weird reason, you had Bitcoin in self-custody and you wanted the ETF, you send it to them and you're given shares of the ETF. And then I think that also sort of disincentivizes the doing of paper Bitcoin like FTX did because you don't necessarily want to manipulate the Bitcoin market and keep the price down. You want the price to go up so you can make more in fees, especially these institutions that also hold like the mining stock and MicroStrategy. They're kind of incentivized for the Bitcoin price to go up. And then the last competition between the ETFs, I think, is unit bias because you and I, we understand that Bitcoin's divisible into Satoshis and there's no reason to have unit bias. But a lot of people, they're like, oh, well, Bitcoin's too expensive. I, I don't have $40,000 to buy a Bitcoin. But if this ticker for the ETF is 10 bucks, so I can buy 100 of these. And that there's just something psychological about that. So I think you'll see kind of competition in that regard. Like who can get their ETF to be the lowest fiat price per share? And that all of these factors, I think, are incredibly bullish. and I'm really glad that there's going to be multiple spot ETFs instead of just one. Did they say that like officially that they're going to do that? Or is that kind of just uh, like the consensus opinion now that they're going to approve them all at once? Yeah, that's just the consensus opinion. But okay. it it would be weird if they didn't, because yeah. why would they have just be able to approve one, one but not horse. the other? Yeah, yeah. Just give one horse the, the race, which would be crazy. Uh, I'm trying to think as well, like just how it's going to go down, because yeah, someone like my dad, who's just like been an engineer their whole life, like all his retirement, all his money is in like Vanguard. And I'm like, dad, you need to buy Bitcoin. He's like, well, you know, I can't, right? Like I can't actually, like he doesn't have that much like liquid cash. Um, but he knows now he's like, yeah, I've heard about BlackRock and all this. I'm like, yeah, I've been telling you for five years, but <laughs> it seems like he's someone, whereas like the moment that that is out and tradable, like if you're a health conscious food consumer, who's also very active, you know how big of a struggle it is to find a bar that is both convenient and nutrient dense. That's why I was so excited when I discovered the Alpha Bar. The Alpha Bar is a meat-based bar that contains only simple ingredients, 100% grass-fed beef, tallow, and honey, and is both nutrient dense and convenient and packs a caloric punch of over 300 calories. For me, this was a game changer and is now the go-to snack and fuel source I use when I'm hiking, camping, hunting, skiing, or doing anything in the outdoors and I don't have the resources to cook a full meal. The Alpa Bar is made proudly in Colorado and only uses locally sourced meat. 
JJ, and Rob are also extremely based and accept Bitcoin for payment. I highly recommend you check out the Alpha Bar for any time you need a nutrient-dense and convenient snack on the go. Check them out at eatalpha.com and use code DRADIO5 at checkout to get a 5% discount. And if you pay in Bitcoin, you can get an additional discount on top of that. That's eataupa.com and use code DRADIO5 at checkout. I think it's just going to like go nuts, right? Like it's just going to be insane. I think so, How many people are finally just going to be able to put money in it because they just don't have that liquidity in cash or in money markets or, or whatever. They're all tied up in IRAs or 401ks or, you know. Yeah, people, they want Bitcoin exposure, but they want it in a way that they're familiar with. Most people, they're not, they don't want to be responsible for their own keys. Like, they should be, no. they should want that. But even people like I talked to a cousin of mine, he works in finance. He's only 30. He's like a millennial. Even he, he is like kind of not comfortable with the idea of taking self-custody. And it, it sounds kind of sketchy to people. It's like, oh, you, yeah, you write down these words on this piece of paper. You can stamp it into metal. And like, if you lose it, you don't have your Bitcoin. Nobody can get it from you or get it for you. And it's just a level of responsibility that most people don't want to take, but they do want exposure to number go up technology. So the ETF is kind of perfect for these people. And it's, I think the question really boils down to how much risk do these types of investors take? Do they put half a percent of their portfolio into Bitcoin? Do they put 1%, 5%? And you know, the, the, obviously the higher that number is, the higher the Bitcoin price is going to go. I'm just curious if there's going to be like, a big hype right when it gets released and then sort of a dull um, or it's just going to take time. Like it'll take like a couple months for because just think about the process, right? Like think about the average, like, I don't know, 60 year old person. They're going to want to meet with their financial advisor and be like, oh, Tommy, you know, why should I buy Bitcoin? Or I've heard about this or, or the financial advisor is going to be like, hey, we have this new offering like this ETF. Um, so I'm curious, like what percentage of people are, are it's just going to take them like a few months to even consider it. Whereas I'm sure a lot of folks, like how many people are, are waiting for that exact moment? Is it a ton um, or not? And that's something I guess we don't know. Yeah. Upon immediate approval, I'm not sure. But I do think, let's say the ETFs approved in January, having in April, I think that three, four month period, we're going to see the price go up because the financial advisors especially the ones under the wing of BlackRock, which is a lot of them, they're going to use the having as their sales tool. Mm, Anybody who's ever yeah. worked in sales, they all, you always have some sort of weapon, something you, you use to, to help sell your product. The product here being the Bitcoin ETF, all they have to do is point at the having and say, every time this thing has happened, look what the Bitcoin price does, orders of magnitude. So you need to get into this ETF right now. So I think that three or four month period, we're going to see number go up and then after the halving, I mean, all bets are off. All your models will be broken. Like, who knows what this thing's going to do in the second half of 2024? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how it plays out. I'm just trying to think of creative ways to like get my like my dad or someone <laughs> equivalent like in before the rush. MicroStrategy, uh, yeah. probably. Yeah, I've heard. I, that's what I told him. I told him yeah. I was like, "Can your Vanguard whatever buy MicroStrategy?" He's like, "I don't know." I was like, "Well, figure it out," because like. I, I've been, I love MicroStrategy. I mean, even the mining stocks as well. Like, they're going to go up more than Bitcoin, probably. Yeah, probably. And, but during the bear market, they'll probably go down. Oh, yeah. More. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an, it's, I don't recommend trading, but if you're going to trade, no. 
you need to, I'll be honest, like a small percentage of my portfolio is mining stocks and micro strategy. And I plan on trying to time that and sell it during the bull market. I'll, I'll probably get wrecked. Who knows? Yeah, we don't know. But I'm not, I don't plan on holding that stuff for decades. The vast majority of my portfolio is spot Bitcoin cold storage that I'm going to hold for decades. But if you're going to trade any kind of asset, you need to use Bitcoin as your denominator, right? What can outperform Bitcoin? Well, it's going to be either mining stocks because their cash flows are tied to Bitcoin and their balance sheet is all Bitcoin, or it's going to be MicroStrategy who has borrowed money to buy Bitcoin and they have a software business on top. So they're constantly DCAing and increasing their total supply of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So you need one of those two strategies to outperform Bitcoin and everything else is just going to get toasted. You know, the S&P 500, tech stocks, everything else in Bitcoin terms going down forever. I 100% agree. I, I mean, I literally do the same thing. It was rough because some of the mining stocks I got into like when they're quite high, but I've been dollar cost averaging down the last two years. And it's been, and same with MicroStrategy. It's, yeah, and it's wild. They'll literally, you know, even in the past, you know, four months, they've, they've just gone crazy and we're not even close to like where their all-time highs yeah. are. And um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a good way to just, uh, yeah, uh, if you can, if you're more familiar with the traditional stock market and that's comfortable for you, I think it makes sense. And then you have some indirect exposure to Bitcoin. To me, it, um, yeah, it's kind of like a no-brainer. If you want to diversify, diversify in terms of, yeah, different exposures to Bitcoin is uh, the way I like to see it. Yeah. And I actually, I had this conversation with a friend of mine yesterday about diversification and I think this is where we we can distinguish between Bitcoin is not an investment, it's saving, right? It's not it's money. Yeah, it's saving. Yeah, it's money. And you don't diversify your money, right? You don't have a bunch of euros and yen and pesos. <laughs> you just save in dollars. You save in whatever your native currency is. My native currency is Bitcoin, so there's no need to diversify into other currencies like the dollar. You just save in, in something. You pick the best savings tool and you save it. It's so true. And it's like undervalued. But even if you're trying to convince like your dad, your uncle, your cousin, it's like even a like 10% allocation to Bitcoin, which will diversify your whole portfolio is going to like de-risk everything and, you know, the potential upside. Yeah, it's that pitch is still needed. But if you actually get Bitcoin, then it's like, oh, I can't believe you have like, you know, 100% yeah. of your portfolio in Bitcoin. It's like, well, that's just my money, man. That's my savings yeah. account. So I don't know. That's not like, what are you talking about? Like, it's not, it's, it's so funny that paradigm shift. And once you realize that, you know, that's, it's, it's so fun to, to think about that. But I'm curious, you know, because you do look at on chain data. Like, have you seen, like, would it be easy to tell when a BlackRock or Vanguard is like just started buying like a bunch of Bitcoin and it's moving off uh, exchanges and things well, like that? Like, that really hasn't it, happened, has it? Well, it happened at the bottom, right? Like there's a lot of obviously buying at the bottom. It, but. it could be difficult to tell because most of them are going to use Coinbase as the custodians, right? So yep. they could be buying through Coinbase as a broker and then custodying with Coinbase. And theoretically, that Bitcoin could never... Uh, it already was bought, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It might not even move on chain. And even if it does, it's just going to go from one Coinbase wallet to another. So it, it may actually be difficult to tell. Who knows? But... I also think we're going to always see plebs like you and I continue to buy Bitcoin and take it off the exchanges. This epoch, I think the at the start in 2020, it was like some three and a half million Bitcoin on exchanges. And now it's like two and a half million. 
So that's a pretty big drop in just three or four years. And what we've seen is during during the past bear market, every time price went down, we saw on-chain plebs bought the dip. You saw Bitcoin leave exchanges at a faster rate during those time periods than other time periods. We also saw that recently on the pump of 40K. Instead of like selling into the price going up, we saw hardened Bitcoiners, long-term holders on-chain actually get more aggressive with their buying and take more Bitcoin off the exchange. So eventually, just from the cumulative power of the cyber hornets, all the Bitcoin will get drained off the exchanges. But that, that may take a little time if, uh, depending on you know, how, how the ETFs actually shake out, if that populates as you know, Bitcoin leaving exchanges. I'll be curious to see how that actually looks on-chain. Yeah, I was curious. I figured it's not really like if it was some obvious indicator, we already would have known about it. So right. I, I figured it's not really the best. You know, we we don't know for sure. We can only yeah wait and see, which is exciting. Um, one other thing I want to ask you about Blockware was that you said they do the hosted mining. Like, how exactly does that work? Because that's probably something that people don't know a ton about. I would say listen to this. Right. So we have a data center in Kentucky, and it's right on the border with Kentucky and West Virginia. And then we have another partner site in Oklahoma City, and we have one in Washington. And how it works is you buy rigs. They're they're your ASICs. They're plugged in at our site. And what's what distinguishes Blockware from the other hosted mining providers is we have a what's called a Blockware marketplace. So a huge problem during the last bull market was these massive lead times. Part of that was supply chain, but then also just the massive demand for ASICs. Mm-hmm. You would buy a rig and it wouldn't get plugged in for like two months, two, three months. You're missing all those profits during the bull market. With the Blockware marketplace, all the rigs on there are turnkey. They're already online. So you pay with Bitcoin on chain. As soon as your transaction gets six confirmation, that's that rig's yours now. And the hash power is pointed to your wallet. You're instantly receiving mining rewards. So it's it's turnkey, which is exciting. Then it brings a level of transparency too, because you could go on the marketplace, look at the dashboard. You can see exactly how your rigs have been performing. You can see how before you even buy the rig, you can see, you know, what's its hash rate over the last 30 days. So you're no, you're not buying a bunk machine because yeah, all ASICs are are basically the same, but they're not all built equal, right? Because they're big, you know, 30, 40 pound computers and a hot data center. Some of them just don't run as well, right? Some of them need repairs. Stuff happens. It's it's a blue collar business. So you can have that level of transparency before you buy the machines and while you have the machine. And then lastly, it actually allows you to capitalize on the ASIC price appreciation. Like I mentioned earlier, S19s during the the bull market were reaching, you know, $10,000. If you had bought them cheaper, there wasn't really any liquid market to sell them into, right? ASICs as their own asset class have historically been very opaque in, in the market, right? There's not a lot of good ASIC pricing data because all these transactions are kind of happening in these telegram groups, like very much like an under the ground type of market. And our goal with the marketplace and what we've already seen is we can view the actual ASIC pricing dynamics. So when the price goes up, how are sellers changing their prices? How are buyers responding? We see a flurry of activity when the price goes up, even, you know, it goes up 10% a week, you just see a, the massive surge in people wanting to buy ASICs. So it's super fascinating. And, you know, our, our teams at these sites do a really good job on, on keeping your rigs clean and, and making sure they're hashing properly. I've actually, I've had the opportunity to visit our site in Kentucky. The guys there do a fantastic job. So if you want to get into Bitcoin mining, uh, most people don't have cheap enough power at home. You basically need a host and Blockware is the best host in the business. Yeah, that makes sense. And especially given all the issues that folks like Compass and all that 
had right that yeah, was always kind of like sketchy to me but it, it makes sense and then you guys are basically making money by like having a slave premium on the electricity price right but right. it's still way cheaper than you know if you do it at home yeah and you know like i, I will say their name but you said it into companies like that have brought a bad bad name to the host of mining industry and that's why we 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 own and operate the, the site in kentucky we took a lot of time building that out that's our employees they they work for blockware that are at that site and then our two partner sites, we, we do extreme due diligence before, you know, partnering with, with other mining operators, because what you saw with the company you named, they, they rushed to expand very, very, very quickly, kind of a gypsy sites, right? You know, just get, get machines on, get them plugged in ASAP. Don't even like, it doesn't matter if it's in Russia, right? Like, come on now. So we only operate sites in the United States and yeah, that's what makes the marketplace so great. You can actually see these rigs before you buy them they're already online you don't have to wonder where they're at are they actually plugged in are they working it's like as soon as your transaction confirms on chain the hash power is on your dashboard the mining rewards you know they're getting streamed to your wallet that's cool i think that's important especially because as we discussed like this uh feasibility and profitability of people to mine at home um is uh pretty much impossible in, in terms of the non-kyc aspect is that still totally doable right because you're just uh like what do you need to sign up with i guess yeah so you can if you go on the marketplace you could sign up very quickly and easily um yeah agree to the terms of service you have to put in a little information about your your name a billing address and everything because the the monthly um so you pay your monthly electricity bill with fiat so we'll, we'll bill you monthly for the electricity and then you're always getting the bitcoin mining rewards you can set that threshold however you want so it's just super simple process to to sign up and get started mining. Got it, got it. So I'm sure you could uh, get creative with that if you wanted to. Moving on to what a Bitcoin like standard looks like. I guess what are you just most excited about in terms of maybe the progression of society? We talked a little bit about the health stuff, but I know um, you kind of post a lot of good things in general about this. So I'm curious, yeah, maybe 10, 15 years. What are you most excited or most eager to see? Um, being improved upon when the money is uh, is Bitcoin and it's not fiat. I am most excited one for government spending to drop and we stop getting these wasteful spending on programs because if they can't generate taxation uh, or do the inflation tax, then they can only spend what they can actually get through regular taxation, which will severely cut the budget. Massive cuts going to have to be made. A lot of these wasteful programs will go. That capital is going to get allocated better. You're going to see a lot of these three-letter agencies disappear, which are putting regulations and restrictions on businesses, hindering you know s- small businesses, et cetera. So that that alone will make society better. And then the second thing would be Bitcoiners being in control of capital. Bitcoiners having the funds to go start their own businesses. People who understand value, right? They understand what it means uh, to provide a, a good or service that is deemed valuable by the economy, and proof of work, right? So when Bitcoiners are running the businesses and not a bunch of fiat leeches, I think we're going to see a lot more, you know, services that that are good for society, right? I think guys like you and I may open up seed oil free restaurants and stuff like that. And I think another thing will be this kind of is tied into Bitcoin, but it's almost separate is the traditional educational system. You know, we were talking earlier about how homeschool is so, so much better, but I mean, the university system, man, I just, I graduated college in 2022. It's it's terrible. And of course, it's financed by money printing effectively, government subsidies, government securing loans, no matter 
if you need to go to school or not, if you want to go study something nonsense, you're not going to get a job. It doesn't matter. We'll give you a loan anyways to pay for it. And you can't default on it. And there's no collateral to back the loan, which makes no sense. What other type of loan can you get with no collateral, right? With a mortgage, there's the house. You can borrow against stock and borrow against Bitcoin. There's always some sort of collateral, but with an education, there's no tangible collateral there. So I think you're going to radically see the university system get transformed, especially because you can just learn on the internet for free. The cost of information is, is quite literally zero, the marginal cost. And that was used to be the reason for university. It was you go there because they actually had the information. If you wanted to learn, you had to go there. They had the books, they had the people with the knowledge, but now the inter in internet has made that accessible to everyone. And the only thing that's left making a, a university degree worth anything is the prestige, right? It's like the clout, the appeal to authority. Oh, I have a degree, but that's, that's really going away fast because most people, they've been through it now and they understand, hey, like a lot of these kids that are graduating college, they actually don't have any skills. Like this degree doesn't mean anything. They've, they're watered down by the sheer quantity of people that have degrees. And then when COVID happened and classes are like online, I think that really exposed a lot of the fraud of it too, not to mention the cost. So I think we see a radical transformation in education, which will be a net positive for society because people are going to be able to learn faster and cheaper and actually learn skills. Like I think a model that that's going to work really well is sort of the apprentice model, right? If you want to do something, you study directly underneath someone who is doing what you exactly what you want to do. You don't have to waste time with all these general education courses, you know, spend four years of your life to not really develop any skills. You can just, Hey, this is the job I want to do. Let, let me watch this guy who's doing it and learn it. Yeah. The academia has just you realize it's the most like fiat thing that it, that exists. It's it's so in, insane. And then like scientific research, like everything that stems from it as well. It's so centralized. And, and that's what I'm probably most excited about as well is we have literally made almost no progress in terms of like innovation, real innovation on a lot of fronts in terms of technology and education and pushing the boundaries. And yeah, even someone who's slightly uh, out there like Elon Musk has just like, you know, like think about cars. Like, yeah, he's just, everyone's like, oh yeah. And, and I'm not a huge fan of his in general. I'm kind of neutral, but it's like, you just get one person who has enough money to just say like, fuck you to industry standards. Um, right. You can actually innovate. Now think if there's, you know, a hundred Elon Musk, cause they all own Bitcoin and then they can actually use that money that they have, that they created through Bitcoin to truly fund innovation, truly fund, you know, like architecture projects and the arts will come back. Everyone talks about like this uh, reemergence of the Renaissance, which it all sounds very nice, but I still think it's kind of going to be an ugly fight to get there from like the just controlling new world order uh, system that they want to implement. But it's going right. to be after a certain period of time, we're just, you know, we're going to have enough of the, the, the wealth and, and our health to we're, we're, we opted out. So it'll be these like parallel systems. I think it's going to be, I'm really excited, right? Like I'm glad I'm alive today and pretty young to like see all this play out and obviously be lucky enough to have some Bitcoin um, to prepare my future, you know, generations to come. But yeah, what a wild time we're, we're kind of set in for here in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, that was well said. You hit on a really important point, which is that innovation comes from the private sector. It doesn't come from academia. Every great Invention has come from an entrepreneur seeking to make profits. The Wright brothers into playing. You've got 
Elon Musk, which again, like you, I'm kind of neutral on him. And it's, it doesn't come from some professor in a lab writing a 30 page research report that nobody is going to read. Like the academic research is such a circle jerk is the right way to describe it because you can only reference other academic research. It's like all these guys like reading each other's papers, writing each other's papers and not actually producing anything and nobody else actually even reading their research. It's insane. But on Elon Musk, dude, you mentioned, you know, sort of like New World Order. He, I, I li- admire him as like a businessman, but he is a little suspect when you think about, you know, he's making brain chips, he's making electric cars, oh, yeah. he's trying to make an <laughs> all-encompassing app for everything. It's, it's a little sus, I gotta say. Yeah, they're very skeptical, but it's like he's already made Twitter like way better platform, and there, um, there's a lot of good coming from there. Like this Cybertruck and Tesla, yeah, I'm not a fan of like the electric uh, vehicle component. I mean, maybe like if it was just an electric vehicle and didn't have like all this other crap, but you know, why shouldn't we have like a fully stainless or fully steel like grade car that's like yeah. indestructible? Like I, if that was like internal combustion engine or something like that, you know, it, uh, that'd be sick. So I, I do think that at least it's a, it's stirring the pot, which is a, a good thing. Yeah. He's definitely made Twitter better, but if there was one guy who's, building the infrastructure that they would need for a surveillance state it's most definitely oh, Elon yeah. musk yeah the satellites and starlink um, and all that it's like there's a lot of trade-offs here and uh could go on and on about all of this but it's fun i'm excited that we're part of this excited that you came on it's uh great to finally connect where can people find more of your work and uh where you're at on social media well on twitter. yes sir i appreciate you having me on tristan it's a good conversation you find me on twitter at Mitchell Hoddle, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-H-O-D-L. That's pretty much the only platform I'm active on. You can also follow, uh, I run the Blockware YouTube channel. So if you go on YouTube and type at Blockware, you'll find us. So appreciate you having me on, brother. It's a good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. If I'm, uh, I have a lot of family in the Southeast. So if I ever next time make it down there, I'll definitely have to hit you up. Be great to absolutely in person. 100%. Alrighty. Have a great one, Mitch. Thanks for coming on. And thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll see you next time.